Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. John Mosby was called the Grey Ghost for the way he kept hundreds of Confederate Rangers hidden from the Yankees. In the Shenandoah Valley, when thousands of men led by Stonewall Jackson were chased by Federal forces, he managed to give them the slip time and again. But that is nothing compared to the body of half a million people, bigger than any two Civil War armies put together, whose presence shaped many Civil War campaigns, and yet who have remained historically invisible until now. We'll explore their amazing story with Professor Amy Murrell Taylor, author of Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the regular home of Civil War Talk Radio tonight, the third floor of the Brewster Building, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the university, nor will my guest speak for any university or any other organization, always just every person for him or herself here on Civil War Talk Radio, as we usually do it. It is a beautiful, uh, balmy May, 1st of May, May Day of 2019. It is finals week here on campus. It is... uh, Two weeks since there was a, a, a tragic car accident I mentioned to you uh, 
that took the lives of some ECU students two, two weeks ago. And unfortunately, this past week has seen tragedy strike the UNC University system again, this time uh, a shooting in a classroom at UNC Charlotte, our sister campus, far on the other side of the state, six hours away, but still part of the system. Last year, at about this time, I took part in a drill on campus, mostly out of my own curiosity. They did a, uh, a day-long live shooter exercise with local law enforcement and uh, first responders and <clears throat> all kinds of other people on campus, and I went to, uh, volunteered to do it. I was not one of the victims because they had to get made up and covered with injuries and stay longer. But it was an interesting thing to do. I was curious, and I learned the, the mantra, run, hide, fight, if a shooter is in the area. Uh, I guess I'm glad I did that because uh, school shootings apparently have become something that uh, that as a, a nation we decided more or less to accept rather than take uh, meaningful action, whatever that might entail. So they're, they're like hurricanes. We can prepare for them uh, like any other natural disaster, uh, like the weather we brace for it, uh, be prepared. But you can't actually change the weather, and obviously there's no way any society could provide increased mental health care or reduce opportunities for mentally ill people to get firearms or tone down the political and religious rhetoric that radicalizes people into jihadists or white nationalists or whatever. Uh, clearly nothing we can do about any of those, So, uh, or at least we're not willing to, and so until then uh, we have just run, hide, fight when it happens next, and uh, I, I live in fear it will happen here at ECU, and then it'll be thoughts and prayers afterwards, and then wait for the next one. Um, I, the, I don't talk about politics on the show, as you know, if you've listened to any of the, or all of the previous 430 episodes. Uh, one time I did say something about gun violence when there was a, a mentally ill person in Greenville, who turned out to be in a parking lot where my wife happened to be at that time, and I there, the police did a wonderful job controlling the situation. No one got hurt. Uh, but I mentioned my, my feeling that, that there ought to be some way to keep guns out of the hands of people with these kinds of illnesses. And I got a small fraction, tiny amount of, of email people saying, well, I'm never listening to your show again. And my answer is, if you feel that that's what the framers had in mind when they said a well-regulated militia meant guns for crazy people, um, you're welcome to not let the digital screen door hit you on the butt out of the way on your way out of the podcast. Uh, but let's not talk about that anymore. Let's move on to uh, other news on campus. Uh, in much happier news, BCU baseball continues to roll. Took two out of three from Tulane last week. Uh, probably a good thing they lost the third game because they they were getting. Uh, Getting overconfident, they they were they were thinking they could beat anybody, and they need to get get their minds right for uh, for the trip to Omaha if they can make it this year. And in really good news at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, I am thrilled to announce that the uh, Civil War Talk Radio uh, uh, digital advisor, my daughter Maria, has gotten herself her first job, having graduated from North Carolina UNC last year at about this time and done a couple internships since then. She's landed a full-time position in Chicago. She is living the young 
professional life. Uh, it, it's a great time to be alive, and it's a great time to be a dad who is looking at those insurance premiums and thinking, tell me about your benefits again. Uh, but congratulations to Maria, and uh, hope uh, that continues to go well. Here at Civil War Talk Radio, things are going well in terms of digital progress. A couple of years ago, we had the year of a thousand likes where everybody was urged to like the show on Facebook and get the numbers up. Uh, but that's not self-promotion, which is the best promotion, uh, is, is not something we have to do all the time. Uh, the show seems to grow organically. We had about 40,000 hits uh, per average show in 2016 and broke the 50,000 mark for the June of 2016 show. And then it stayed there. And in 2017, in October, we broke the September and October broke the 50,000 plateau twice. But last year, in 2018, uh, the show got 60,000 hits in October 2018 for the first time. And uh, to my surprise, the April numbers just came in 70,000. So thank you for listening or clicking repeatedly as if you were listening, whatever it is that uh, you were doing, or for creating a bot that listens repeatedly to the show. Uh, but it, it's it's great to be part of a Civil War community and to uh, to meet you at conferences or Civil War roundtables and, and read your emails and, and talk with you that way and hear your suggestions for new people to be on the show. And, and there really are a lot of us uh, interested in this uh, critical era, era of America's past. And I'm... I'm glad that, that we get to share an hour a week uh, to, to talk about it. You can find out who will be with us next week by listening to me tell you right now that it will be uh, Joan Cashin, author of War Stuff, uh, and another book at the same time called War Matters. They're both on my table here, so we'll find out what the difference is and, uh, and, and the difference between stuff and matter, and we'll talk to Gary Gallagher the following week on May 15th, about Civil War Places. And you can find out more about all these people or hear them uh, by going to the Civil War Institute, Gettysburg College, June 14 through 19. Uh, go to their website, gettysburg.edu, look for the Civil War Institute. Uh, Gary Gallagher will be there. Our guest tonight, Amy Taylor, will be there. Uh, Aaron Sheehan Dean. Um, Steve Barry, Earl Hess, Peter Carmichael, Ed Ayers, lots of people who've been on the show, uh, others who will be on the show, and I'll be there recording people uh, to be on the show uh, in the next season. So uh, come on down, uh, go to the Institute. You get a discount if you tell them you're a Civil War Talk Radio listener, which if you're hearing me say that means you are. And one last announcement, check out the 2019 Civil War Roundtable Congress, a great idea, an annual meeting to share best practices among roundtables, get those numbers up. There's lots of us out there interested, but we don't always connect with each other. Uh, this meeting will be September 20 through 22 in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, go online, look for Civil War Roundtable Congress, find out more about it. So lots going on in the world. Here tonight we have the author of the book that won this year's Tom Watson Brown Prize for the best, best Civil War book given by the Society of Civil War Historians, people who actually have reason to know something about it. Uh, 
This author is Professor Amy uh, Morrell Taylor, and the book is called Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps. Uh, Amy, are you there? I am. Thank you for Welcome. having me. Glad to have you. Congratulations on winning the prize. That was uh, made me feel prescient that we had scheduled you to be on uh, just a week after they announced it. Thank you. It, as you know, there are so many wonderful books published every year, so I'm enormously honored. Um, so thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your own background. What, what first got you interested in Civil War history? <laughs> well, that's a great question. My story is not the same as some people. I have colleagues in the field who have this formative moment when they were a kid, when somebody mm-hmm. gave them some book uh, or took them to Gettysburg and it kind of lit this fire that they've you know, had for life. Um, for me, it was a little bit of a slower immersion into Civil War history. I actually grew up in Maryland. And as a kid, we used to drive by Antietam Battlefield quite a bit, and it didn't light my fire, actually. Um, you know, as an eight, ten-year-old girl, I just, you know, didn't, didn't quite take to it. Um, mm-hmm. But what happened was, you know, I went to college, and um, I started taking courses in history and was actually hooked into history through the history of women. So that's been a very important part of um, what I do. And uh, one semester, I had a course with a professor at Duke University named Ann Fear Scott, who actually just passed mm-hmm. away this year, but pioneer in Southern women's history. And uh, she assigned me a collection of papers in the special collections department at Duke. And it was um, the Munford Ellis family. They were in Richmond, Virginia during the Civil War. And I, it was just this moment where I just couldn't. I just got so absorbed in their story, um, just couldn't imagine what they were living with as I was reading their letters and their diaries. And uh, it just kind of, it was like a, a switch flip. And um, that was kind of the moment that really got me thinking about the war and thinking about the way it uh, really transformed the lives of so many people. Um, so that's, that's kind of my roundabout story. Of well, that, that's, uh, <clears throat> I, I'm one of those people who went to Antietam as a 10-year-old boy, and it did light the fire. Uh, <laughs> but but that's, that's a really good connection to the book, that uh, the history of the war, the story of the soldiers is familiar to us. It wasn't always that way. A lot of uh, in Civil War writing before World War II focused mostly on the armies, the generals, and then you had you know, Bell Wiley writing about common soldiers after the war and, and, and people rediscovering Company H and, and starting to uh, read memoirs and, and letters and diaries and get interested in the man in the ranks, not just the, uh, the guys at the top. But the population that's been overlooked through much of this time, you know, civilian population, enslaved population, and in particular, uh, uh, well, you write about the people who are in that transition from slavery. Uh, what what got you to that specific uh, population to study? Yeah, well, it's um, somewhat along the lines of what you've been saying. I mean, I, I consider myself a social historian. Mm-hmm. So I'm really concerned 
and interested in the everyday lives of ordinary people. What was it like to live and breathe and smell and experience? I mean, all those things, everyday life in the past. And um, I've always gravitated towards the people who I was not reading about. Um, You know, so first it was women. I wasn't reading enough about women, not hearing enough about them. And um, my first book was actually a study of family in the Civil War, specifically families that divided and uh, aligned themselves on opposing sides of uh, of the battle of the war. And um, that was something I hadn't been reading about and wanted to dig into. But what happened was in the course of that research, I just kept coming across references to enslaved people who were not simply on plantations, but were in the thick of battles themselves. Um, They were in Union Army camps. Um, They were part of campaigns. They were just there. And I kept hearing these references to uh, what historians have often called contraband camps where they lived. And um, it was just one of those things that accumulated over time. And I kept saying, well, why don't I know more? Why don't I know more? And so that was really the beginning. I then had to dig in and find out more. So how big of a population are we talking about? Uh, I think I quoted half a million as a yeah. number in the introduction. Is that the ballpark number? That's the best number we have. Um, that is a number that the uh, staff at the Freeman and Southern Society Project at the University of Maryland, which is a documentary editing project that has um, edited a lot of military records related to slavery and emancipation, they came up with that figure and it's the best one that I can see. Um, I did start to try to come up with my own figure, but I kept coming back to theirs. So it's about a half a million. Um, I suspect that's a conservative number though. So uh, the number may be greater, but half a million is one eighth of the enslaved population in 1860. So I think that puts it in perspective. That's a pretty significant number. It it certainly is. And as I Again, pointed it out in the introduction, it dwarfs the size of any one army uh, of the war. Although, of course, these these people are spread out across the country, not just in one place. What uh, the, the, it's this book is really intriguing and and interesting. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and I want to ask you about how you structured it. We're going to take our first break, so I'll give you a chance to think about that, okay. and come back and discuss the story of the the half million people who escaped from slavery. Where did they live during the war? Where did they go? That's the story in the book Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps. We're talking with author Amy Morrell Taylor. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Beyond the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Amy Taylor, author of Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps. It is a book that explores the story of where people lived in the the netherworld between enslavement and freedom as the war raged. Uh, Amy, one of the things I really liked about the book was the uh, the, the structure. It's not a straight narrative. Uh, it, it's it, it mixes things up. How how did you decide how to write this book the way you did? Well, it came after many other different tries, trying many things, and then finally settling on this. But In general, what I try to do in the book is paint a picture of how this mass flight from slavery plays out over space from eastern Virginia to the Mississippi Valley and into the border states like Kentucky. So I try to cover a big geographic area, but I also wanted to generally move the reader through time because what I found is that we have this temptation to think of emancipation as something that kind of happens overnight, that January 1st, 1863, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation comes and freedom has come to enslaved people. And instead, what, you know, what I really try to show in the book is that it's instead of a much more protracted, long and winding process that uh, plays out over time. And uh, it's really important, I think, to kind of sort of slow down our view of the process and kind of look at each year and look at, um, you know, how differently the situation looked in different places over time. So that's kind of the general structure of the book. But there's also kind of an added layer here where 
I also wanted to provide readers with a sense of the experiences of individuals. You know, it's, that's the social historian in me. Um, you know, I think that you really begin to understand what it was like on a day-to-day basis when you follow an individual through time. So the chapters intersperse these stories of individuals, uh, what I consider kind of micro-level chapters, intersperse those with more macro-level views that then step back and look at the the big picture uh, and look at themes like how did they eat, how did they clothe themselves, where did they live, and so forth. So it's, um, I guess it, it sounds, as I'm talking about it, like a fairly complex structure. But uh, in general, what I was trying to do is give a sense of the big picture, but also the, the day-to-day-ness in the life of an individual. It, it's, you know, like a novelist has main characters, but there are great events going on in the meantime. You've, you've chosen a few mm-hmm. individuals to stand as these representative characters who you write about. Uh, one of the challenges about writing about people like this caught in the, the vortex of incipient freedom is has to be finding sources for them. What mm-hmm. uh, you're dealing with a, a largely non-literate population. How, how did you right. find their stories? Right, and I th- you know I think that's a great question, and I think it's one of the reasons why we haven't known more about their stories because I think historians have tended to think, well, there aren't sources out there. How are we ever going to get at this? Um, how did I go about it? Well, I I kind of dispensed or or set aside the expectation that I was ever going to find this wonderful collection of letters or diaries from somebody coming out of slavery. I mean, they just, they're just not there. And so it required a different kind of method. Uh, What I did was I focused on all sorts of different sources, but a big focal point were the military records. And I found, and I was inspired by, um, again, the Freedmen and Southern Society Project at the University of Maryland, which has really pulled a lot of these from the archives. The military records are really rich in describing what enslaved people were doing when they arrived into Union Army camps. Um, You know, anybody who's worked with military records at the National Archives knows that, you know, there were clerks everywhere and they were um, meticulous. I mean, sometimes three different copies of a particular order, um, you know, they're writing down everything that's going on in some of these encampments and um, that they wrote down names of people uh, who had arrived in camps. They wrote down, you know, every allotment of food, every food ration that was issued to a formerly enslaved person in these camps. Uh, There are orders sometimes dealing with a particular individual, uh, as I call them, refugees, who, um, you know, the army is trying to help them in some way, and there's an order issued to help them, and so forth. So there's lots of military documentation. And so what I tried to set out to do was see if I could follow individuals through that military record. And uh, I built a database and began to connect mentions of particular people across all different sorts of uh, military records. And um, in a few cases, I found that I really was able to make those connections and able to trace the movements of uh, particular individuals across time and across space. And that's was sort of the beginnings of the stories that I tell. That's that moment for a historian when you're 
looking like that, and you you match up you know, uh. this this record from that camp and this one from that regiment, and say, I think this is the same person. I think I just found something that nobody else has known for the last hundred and fifty years. And it's an uh, amazing it's, feeling when that uh, happens. Although although there are so many false connections that can yes. be as well, I found that. There are many enslaved people who were named George Washington. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there were a lot of common naming conventions. And so um, there were some some challenges in connecting them. Well, speaking of names, uh, you make a point that you refer to the people who are refugees from slavery as refugees and not contrabands, the, yeah. the term that... that if, if you're listening to the show, you know what a contraband is, and you use that term to differentiate yourself from your non-Civil War friends who don't know what it means. You have to explain it to them. Uh, but you, Amy, you choose not to use that term. Why is that? Yeah, at first, when I started this research, I did, because that was the, the convention in our literature. Um, but then as I dug in, I noticed a couple things. Um First of all, that the individuals I was talking about never tended to use the word contraband to describe themselves. This is in the case of if you're giving a deposition or filing some petition with the army or something. They never use that language. But even um, just as significantly, there was actually a pretty significant debate at the time among sympathetic white northerners who are on the scene, um, ranging from the military officers to missionaries who had come down to the South. And they're debating the the term. And there are um, abolitionist newspapers like the Liberator newspaper that start publishing articles about how this term contraband, this is not a term fit for a human being. It represents property. It's a term that means property. So they start calling the people refugees. And then I started noticing that the term refugee was used in other places, you know, throughout, in in different camps throughout the South, um, across time. And um, it it made more sense to me as a term that conveyed their personhood, you know, that was not just about being property, but also a term that conveyed their real transitional status here. Uh, Because these are people who, they weren't quite enslaved, but in many cases, as I described, they weren't quite free either, and they weren't quite experiencing the freedom they long imagined. So there's a need for some kind of terminology that represents that transitional state, but uh, I think refugee better captures their status than something that connotes property. I think the, I mean, the Freedmen's Bureau is, you know, formerly the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. So, so there's that refugee term being used historically yeah. at the time. And that, and it, when the Freedmen's Bureau is formed, they're also referring to white refugees, um, mm-hmm. to, to white people who refugeed themselves. And that was true during, you know, during the war itself. So it, it was a, a bigger term than the phenomenon I'm talking about, but it certainly applies to these former slaves. So you were talking a minute ago about the record-keeping in camps when uh, people, refugees leaving slavery, find themselves in these camps. Uh, How many camps are we talking about? I have documented about 300, although, again, I think there are more. I think that's a conservative number. It's, um, It's a very difficult thing to count. 
the Union Army never did a complete census of all these camps. And at the same time, some of them are very transient. Um, you know, they might come into existence for just a few weeks or a month or two, and then they, you know, people have to be evacuated or they have to move on as a campaign moves on. So, um, you know, those more transient camps don't leave as much of an imprint on the record and they're harder to see. But uh, the ones I've been able to document um, have been about 300. The uh, You have some excellent maps in the book that, that show where these are. I'm always a big fan of maps in any Civil War book and uh, no exception here. The one of the things that struck me was your point that, you know, Antietam, which made more of an impression on me than, than on you <laughs> in our respective uh, younger days, is someplace everybody knows about. <laughs> but, you know, everybody knows where Antietam is. Uh, it's heavily monumented and interpreted and preserved. It's a, a spectacular place to learn about the war and to remember the war in different ways. These camps, on the other hand, were not memorialized so I mean, today you can't go on a, uh, you can't easily go on a, a, a refugee camp tour to see where these things were. Right. Right. And I think that's another reason why this history was not told for so long. It's not just that there was concern about sources. It was just that, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, there's not a physical imprint left on the landscape in really any of these places. But um, one interesting thing that's gone on over the last 10 years while I was working on this book is that there have been efforts in some local places where these camps existed to try to at least preserve the land and uh, interpret this history for the public. So this has happened in Helena, Arkansas. They've created a park where there was one of these refugee camps. It's happened uh, around Fort Monroe, Virginia, where, which has now been declared a national monument, largely because of this history. Um, Camp Nelson, Kentucky, down the road from where I'm sitting right now, it just also was declared a national monument, and uh, it also provides um, a sense, you know, a sense of the landscape. But also, they've created a museum documenting with exhibits uh, this history of the refugee camp there. So it's starting to come, but it's not like some of our battlefields. It's not like an antebellum plantation home. It's not like some of the other history that where the physical remnants uh, are still here today. Um, so it's something that's had to be, you know, preserved out of nothing in some ways. I wonder, just thinking out loud as a public historian, if we might ever say something like uh, like Lincoln's New Salem outside of uh, Springfield, which disappeared. There really was no no trace of it, but it's been rebuilt as a historic village, as a, a historic site uh, reproduction. Not not the buildings aren't original, but you could do that. You could uh, at at one of these places someday. Would there be? rows of cabins and, and military tents and reenactors and a uh, chance for people to, to, you know, momentarily immerse themselves in this era and, and recognize how, how widespread the effect of the war, effect of the war was, not just on soldiers, yeah. uh, but on, on the formerly enslaved population. It, it's just a, a thought uh, whether you we'll get there or not. I don't know. 
you could do that. I mean, there are some maps in the military records that mm-hmm. illustrate where these cabins were, where rows of cabins were. And a, a good example is Camp Nelson, Kentucky here. Um, it is possible to, you know, if you get the right land in the right place, and that's still an issue here at Camp Nelson, but if you get it, uh, it could be recreated. But that brings us to the challenge of, you know, you could recreate the structures, mm-hmm. but you can't fully recreate the experience, the deprivation, you know, the struggle. That part of it, it would be a hard thing to uh, recreate in that sort of environment. It, it, but, you know, one might say the same about a battle. That, that well, that's- don't, you know, reenactors don't actually hurt one another, fortunately. But, uh, and even when there are no reenactors on the field, we, with our mind's eye, recreate the, the fighting. But it, it's, it, it strikes me as a promising direction to, uh, to bring that piece of history to life. Uh, through the sort of immersive experience might might well, be would, something that could happen. I wouldn't be surprised if we, we do see that maybe a decade from now, because, you know, as I said, it's just been in the last 10 years that there's this momentum building. Um, I know that the National Trust for Historic Preservation got very interested in this as well and tried to sort of pull some of these efforts together and really build some momentum. So it's possible. Um, I think we're just in a, a, a moment where this is just beginning. Now, one of the things that threads that really runs through your book is the the concept of military necessity, that these camps are not built solely for the convenience of the refugees. Indeed, that's almost an afterthought in many cases. They're they're built because the army has to deal with these people uh, in order to continue fighting its war against the the Southern Rebellion. So. The, the camps are built uh, to suit the army, and at times they are destroyed to suit the army or moved to suit the army, and sometimes it works out for the benefit of the inhabitants and sometimes to their detriment. What we'll do is take another short break and come back uh, and, and take up that thread, the interaction of the military campaigns and the, the, the housing and food and shelter and uh, whatever else was provided in uh, the refugee camps of the Civil War. So we'll be back in just a moment talking with Amy Morrell Taylor, author of Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Amy Morrell-Taylor, author of Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps. And Amy, as I said going into the break, you make a, a major point throughout the book that the, these camps, these hundreds of camps throughout the battlefront, throughout the South, where enslaved people lived temporarily as they, they moved away from their plantations, uh, were, were run by the Union Army, and they're, they're not a charity, they're, uh, they're part of the war effort. Uh, can you talk about how, how these camps interacted with the war Sure. Well, it was really interesting to me from the start uh, to think about these camps as a place where the army and enslaved people came together in everyday ways. And it was interesting to me because the way that we understand emancipation and particularly Lincoln's emancipation policy is that emancipation was a military necessity. It's justified as something that the union needs to win this war. This is how Lincoln can do it. This is how, you know, constitutionally he can do it. And, um, you know, that's a very, you know, important part of the story. And it's one that has conveyed, I think, a sense in our history and our literature that, you know, there's this alliance that is formed between the Union Army and enslaved people. And certainly in the abstract, we can see that. We can see that the interests of enslaved people in the Union Army do align. Uh, there, there's a reason why Lincoln can argue uh, that uh, emancipation is a military necessity. But it's a whole other different thing in everyday life in the day-to-dayness of war to bring the army and enslaved people together. And that's where things get really complicated because here we have 500,000 enslaved people coming into Union Army camps who now need to share resources and share space with these soldiers. This becomes a logistical 
problem and issue that at times pulls this alliance apart. Sometimes they work very well together, but at other times, the needs of the army, the needs of the soldiers actually in everyday life work against enslaved people. And so, as you say, a a through line through the book is looking at that dynamic and how, you know, the army, it's it's a very complex organization, institution, and its needs change constantly over time, over place, with different commanders, different officers with different ideas, uh, different sensibilities about race, and uh, therefore the interaction between the army and enslaved people sometimes works well, but sometimes does not. And it's that that sort of tension is really at the heart of the book. It reminded me in a weird sort of way of reading Little House on the Prairie books to my daughters when they were younger and how the family on, on the, the frontier goes through all this hardship and works and sacrifices and then in a moment it's washed away by a flood or locusts or a prairie fire or something and they just have to start over and and you describe the experiences of these people who find themselves in a camp and they build a cabin and they start a business or they start a garden or farm of some kind and then and then just as suddenly the army says oh new campaign we got to move everybody out in 30 minutes yeah exactly or or confederate guerrillas come in and, and mm-hmm. target their camp and destroy it um or as you say the environmental threats um absolutely it was a really I mean, unstable is is not even, doesn't even begin to describe the experience that they have. But um, this was, this is a big part of the story because here are people, they fled slavery. Um, they are not going back. This is the beginning of a new life. And they go to the Union Army because the Army promises to protect them and protect them from returning to slavery. But their attention immediately turns to trying to build a new life that looks like the freedom they long imagined. And so, as you say, yeah, they're, they're building gardens. They build shelters for themselves. They start businesses in some places. They um, start new independent churches and schooling. I mean, all the things that they've been deprived. But they're doing it in the middle of a war, and they're doing it in the orbit of an army. And so it's... Um, it's a very chaotic and unstable affair, but they, they keep trying and they keep rebuilding every time they have to move. And I think it's a remarkable story of persistence and just tells us just how great the desire was for freedom in the 1860s. One of the things I thought that was really interesting was how these camps, not only are they connected to the army, but in some cases the camps are themselves weapons, or that, that is they are strategically located by the army for the influence that they will have on a campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that phenomenon? Yeah, so uh, especially in the Mississippi Valley, I mm-hmm. noticed this. And, um, you know, here, especially during, but actually after the Vicksburg campaign and in 1864, as the Union Army needs to shift east and uh, send its troops following Sherman. And uh, what this does is it drains the Mississippi Valley of uh, large numbers of Union soldiers. And so what happens is the army envisions that this refugee population, 
So women, children, and also men who have enlisted in black regiments, they're the ones who need to stay behind and hold the land, along, especially along the river. So they're essentially occupying land, they're occupiers for the army. And, uh, you know, this is crucial towards maintaining the Union's hold on the river and maintaining the river traffic that they need to keep going along the river. Uh, but it's something that places these refugees in uh, a really vulnerable position. Um, they are, their numbers are not what they need to be to really protect themselves. And so they become targets of, in this case, Confederate guerrillas who look at settlements of these uh, freedom-seeking people and uh, target them as, um, you know, really their embodiments of this social revolution they're trying to prevent in this war. They don't want slavery to end. And so uh, there's a lot of violence, some very terrifying racial violence in the Mississippi River Valley, but uh, they do do end up holding uh, the the Mississippi River Valley. Sorry, still here just lost my battery for a moment and i'm back uh always something new and technological on civil war talk radio the uh the thing about these camps i just wanted to to suggest as an interesting comparison was the uh uh, the way you see uh, settlements being put down in the middle east on contested ground uh the israeli settlements on the west bank that are highly controversial and political uh, are not just people settling there because they like the landscape, but this is a way of making a political claim mm-hmm. uh, of ownership of land that other people are disputing. And in, in the same way, these slave camps by being put, as, as you describe on the Mississippi Valley, are saying that this is this is the, the new order. This is how things are going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're not military camps. They don't they can't defend themselves, but it's a, a strong political and military statement. Right, right. And um, yeah, and they're becoming the sort of, um, you know, I don't, repository is not a good word, but for all of that Confederate labor that the Confederacy has been relying on, Mm -hmm. um, you know, now they're holding on to them. And, you know, I have some quotes in the book from, I think, Secretary of War Stanton, uh, who talks about how these camps were kind of weapons of war to irritate the enemy so it's not even just occupying land it's also just like we have your enslaved people (laughs) (laughs) we're sticking it to you basically so when you were researching this what what was the most surprising thing you came across i think one of the surprising things at the outset was the large number of children that were involved and were in these camps. In some places, children are the majority of the refugee population in a camp. And um, this surprised me because the way that we understand slave flight before the Civil War, so on the Underground Railroad, those who are migrating north to freedom, that population tended to be primarily, I mean, it was adult, but primarily male. Um, for many reasons, but a lot of it having to do with the sense of the risk that was involved that, you know, they might run off, but it may not work. They may not be able to make it to freedom. 
Well, from the very beginning of the war, this flight to Union Army camps and the establishment of refugee camps featured large numbers of children in addition to women. And that, in my mind, told me that um, this was a very different kind of migration than we saw before the war. This is one where enslaved people thought, this is our moment. This is actually the moment when freedom is coming. And it's a, you know, suggest to some degree a confidence um, and a faith that freedom really was going to come by the fact that they were willing to bring their children into a war zone. Um, so that was very surprising to me. But I have to say there's so much about this history that was surprising to me. Um, I could go on and on. But, you know, even just the idea, the, the extent that a freedom-seeking person would go to try to build a new life in the middle of a war zone while a war is going on, and yet they're still establishing a church and, and planting a garden. I mean, the things we already talked about, uh, that was very striking to me as well, that um, they it's that resilience, that persistence, that belief that freedom was coming. It really is. A, it's just a fascinating story. If a lot of us got interested in the Civil War as younger people through the military angle, wanted to read about the battles, and uh, sometimes it seemed like anything else is a distraction. Uh, the These people operating at the margin, you read about, oh, there's contrabands here, or there's a flock of refugees following Sherman's army through Georgia, and they're, they're on the margin. They're not anything you focus on, and you've turned the, the spotlight on them and shown that this is almost a parallel universe taking place in and on the same ground as the battlefields uh, at the same time and interacting with uh, both Union and Confederate armies, but with very different goals and very different uh, means. Mm -hmm. It is really a fascinating book. I can see why uh, the the prize committee chose it for the the Brown Prize. It really uh, tells us something new, and that's not easy to do with the Civil War. Well, thank you. You know, I really hoped with this book that people will come away with it realizing that we can't separate as much as maybe we have the military history from the history of emancipation, that they really are intertwined here. And one thing we haven't even talked about this evening is, you know, all the labor that this population of refugees was providing to the Union Army, um, all the the cooking, the digging of trenches, um, you know, working as personal servants. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of labor going on here supporting the army that uh, is also enmeshed in that military history. So um, I hope, you know, that, you know, we talk, we've, we've made great strides as historians in, in getting people to understand that Slavery was, you know, the great political issue that brought on this war. But I hope now we can move to seeing that, um, you know, slavery also propelled 500,000 people into the military war and they had a real effect on the outcome. Well, there's it's hard to argue with that after reading this book. It really is an eye opening one and and one that I, you know, I've got a pile on my desk here are books I'll be reading for the, the, the show for, for weeks and months to come. And, and some weeks I think, oh, you know, this looks interesting. Uh, I'll try it. And uh, this one I found extraordinarily enlightening and, and really and enjoyed reading thoroughly. Uh, even if it is at times a grim story, uh, it's also an inspiring one as well. So 
We are at the end of our time, unfortunately, but I want to tell listeners, uh, you really want to read Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps by our guest tonight, Amy Taylor. Amy, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 